0: Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 38, verses 1 and 2. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Burkett notes This chapter gives a sad and sorrowful relation of the chief priests' conspiracy against the life of our blessed Savior, in which we have three particulars observable. One, the persons making this conspiracy the chief priests scribes and elders that is the whole jewish sanhedrin or general council they all lay their malicious heads together to contrive the destruction of the holy and innocent jesus thence learned the general councils have erred and may err fundamentally both in matters of doctrine and practice and so did this general council at jerusalem consisting of chief priests, doctors, and elders, and the high priest, their president. They did not believe Jesus to be the Messiah, after all the miracles wrought before their eyes, but ignominiously put him to death. Observe, too, the manner of this conspiracy against the life of our blessed Savior. It was clandestine, secret, and subtle. They consulted how they might take him by craft and put him to death. Learn, thence, that Satan makes use of the subtlety of crafty men, and abuses their parts as well as their power for his own purposes and designs. The devil never sends a fool on his errand. Observe three, the circumstances of time when this conspiracy was managed, at the feast of the Passover. It was custom among the Jews to execute malfactors at their solemn feasts, at which time all the Jews came up to Jerusalem to sacrifice and then put the malefactors to death, that all Israel might see and fear and not do so wickedly. Accordingly, the feast of the Passover was waited for by the Jews as a fit opportunity to put our Savior to death. The only objection was that it might occasion a tumult and uproar amongst the people, there being such a mighty concourse at that time in Jerusalem. But Judas, making them a proffer, They readily comply with the motion and resolve to take the first opportunity to put our Saviour to death. Verses three through six. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve, and he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money, and he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them. In the absence of the multitude. Burkett notes Observe here, one, the person betraying our blessed Savior, Judas. Judas, a professor, Judas, a preacher, Judas, an apostle, and one of the twelve, whom Christ had chosen out of the world to be his dearest friend, one of his family and household. Shall we wonder to find friends unfriendly or unfaithful to us when our Savior had a traitor in his own family? Observe, two, the heinous nature of Judas's sin he betrayed jesus jesus his maker jesus his master it is no strange or uncommon thing for the vilest of sins the most horrid impieties to be acted by such persons as make the most eminent profession of holiness and religion observe 3 what was the occasion that led judas to the commission of this sin it was his inordinate love of money I do not find that Judas had any particular malice, spite, or ill will against our Savior, but a base and unworthy spirit of covetousness possessed him, and this made him sell his master. Covetousness is the root of sin. An eager and insatiable thirst after the world is the parent of the most monstrous and unnatural sins, for which reason our Savior doubles his caution. Luke 12.15. Take heed and beware of covetousness. It shows us both the great danger of the sin and the great care we ought to take to preserve ourselves from it. Verses 7 through 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in, and ye shall say to that good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is thy guest chamber, where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room, furnished, there make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready for the Passover. (coughs) Burkett notes, The time for the celebration of Passover being now at hand Christ sends two of his disciples, Peter and John, to Jerusalem to prepare what was needful in order thereunto. And here we have observable 1. An imminent proof and evidence of Christ's divinity in foretelling his disciples all the particular occurrences and circumstances which they should meet with in the city, as a man bearing a pitcher of water, etc. Observe 2. How readily the heart of the householder was disposed to receive our Savior and his disciples, and to accommodate them with all things needful upon this occasion. Our blessed Savior had not a lamb of his own, and preadventure no money wherewith to purchase one. Yet he finds a more agreeable accommodation in this poor man's house than if he had dwelt in Ahab's ivory palace and had the provisions of Solomon's table." When Christ has a Passover to celebrate, he will dispose the hearts of his children and his servants to a free reception of himself. The room that Christ will enter into must be a large room, an upper room, a room furnished and prepared. A large room is the emblem of an enlarged heart, enlarged with love, with joy and thankfulness. An upper room is a heart exalted, not puffed up with pride, but lifted up by heavenly meditation. And a room furnished is a soul adorned with all the graces of the Holy Spirit. Into such a heart does Christ enter, and there delights to dwell. Here is my rest forever, says Christ. Here will I dwell, for I have delighted therein. Verses 14 through 23 And when the hour was come, he sat down with the twelve apostles with him, and said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof, until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and gave thanks, and said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread, and gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me." Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire amongst themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. Burkett notes. Observe here. 1. 1. What ardency of desire and vehemency of affection our holy Lord expresses, to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, and to administer the sacramental supper to them, before he left them. With desire have I desired to eat with you before I suffer. Thence learn that it is very necessary, when sufferings do appear, especially when death doth approach, to have immediate recourse to the table of the Lord, which affords both an antidote against fear and a restorative to our faith. Christ, the night before he suffered, communicated with his disciples. Observe, too, the unexampled boldness of the impudent traitor Judas. Though he had sold his master, he presumes to sit down at the table with him and with the other disciples. Had the presence of Judas polluted this ordinance to any but himself, doubtless our Savior would not have suffered him to approach unto it. It teaches us that although nothing is more ordinary than for unholy persons to present the holy ordinances of God, which they have no right, whilst such, to approach unto. Yet their presence pollutes the ordinance only to themselves. Holy persons are not polluted by their sins, therefore ought not to be discouraged from coming by their presence. Observe 3. Christ did not name Judas, and say, O thou perfidious traitor, but behold the hand of him that betrayed me, Is with me on the table. Doubtless Christ did not name him because he would not drive him to despair, but draw him to repentance. But Lord, thou knowest us when thou namest not. O how sad it is for any of thy family, who pretend friendship with thee, to conspire against thee, and after they have ate of thy bread, to lift up the heel against thee. Observe for that though Judas was not named, yet he saw himself pointed at by our Saviour. Behold, the hand that betrayeth me is on the table. And Judas' heart told him whose hand that was. Yea, though Judas heard that dreadful sentence denounced against him, Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Yet he is no more blanked than innocency itself. This shameless man had the impudence to say to our blessed Savior, Master, is it I? Though St. Luke says it not, the other evangelists tell us that Christ answered him, Thou say it. Did not Judas, we think, blush extremely and hang down his guilty head at so galling an intimation? Nothing less. We read not of anything like it. Lord, how does obstinacy and sinning steal the brow and render it incapable of all relenting impressions? Immediately after the celebration of the Passover followed the institution of the Lord's Supper, where we have observable the author, the time, the elements, and the ministerial actions. Observe one, the author of this new sacrament, Jesus took bread. Learn, thence, that to institute a sacrament is the sole prerogative of Jesus Christ. The Church has no power to make new sacraments. It is only her duty to celebrate those which our Savior has made. 2. The time of the institution, the night before the Passion, the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. 3. The sacramental elements, bread and wine. Bread, representing the body, and wine the blood of our Redeemer, bread being an absolutely necessary food, a common and obvious food, a strengthening and refreshing food, and wine being the most excellent drink, the most pleasant and delightful, the most cordial and restorative. For these reasons, among others, did Christ consecrate and set these creatures apart for those holy purposes for which he had designed them. For the ministerial actions, breaking of the bread and blessing of the cup, Jesus took bread, that is, separated it, and set it apart from common use, for holy purposes. He blessed it, that is, he prayed for a blessing upon it, and break it, thereby shadowing forth his body broken upon the cross. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, This broken bread signifies my body, which is suddenly to be broken upon the cross, for the redemption and salvation of a lost world. Do you likewise in this remembrance of my death? As to the cup, Christ, having set it apart by prayer and thanksgiving, he commands his disciples to drink all of it. For, says he, this cup is the new testament in my blood. That is, the wine in this cup doth represent the shedding of my blood, by which the new covenant between God and man is ratified and confirmed. Drink ye all of this, says our Savior, Whence we gather that every communicant has as undoubted a right to the cup as he has to the bread in the Lord's Supper. Therefore, for the church of Rome to deny the cup to the common people is sacrilege, and directly contrary to Christ's institution. Verses 24 through 27. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called the benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth? Is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you, as he that serveth. Birkett notes If these words be not placed out of order by St. Luke here, it may seem very strange that the apostles, immediately after receiving the sacrament, should entertain their minds with thoughts of precedency and superiority, and much stranger yet that they should discourse openly of such a subject as this, especially considering what our Savior had just before told them, that he was betrayed into the hands of sinners. But whether at this time or not, it is most certain at some time or other a strife was found amongst them, which should be the greatest. Now that our Savior might effectually quench those unhappy sparks of ambition which were kindled in his apostles' minds, he tells them that supremacy and domination belong to secular princes, not to evangelical pastors, who ought to carry themselves with humility and condescension one towards another. Not that Christ directs to a parity and equality among his ministers, or forbids the preeminency of some over others, but the effecting of superiority and the love of preeminency is that which our Savior alloweth. Learn, one, that so far ought the ministers of Christ to be from effecting a domination and superiority of power over their fellow brethren, that, in imitation of Christ, their Lord and Master, they ought to account themselves fellow servants. I am among you as one that serveth. 2. That such ministers as do love and affect preeminency and superiority are most unfit for it, and they deserve it best that seek it least. 3. That the dignity and honor which the ministers of Christ should chiefly and only affect is in another world, and the way to be the greatest and highest there is to be low and humble here, mean in our own eyes, and little in our own esteem. Whosoever is chief, says Christ, let him be your servant verses 28 through 30. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Burkett notes. Observe here what an honorable acknowledgement Christ makes of the constancy of his disciples' love and affection towards him. Ye are they that have continued with me in my temptations, that is, in my afflictions, trials, and sufferings. It is an easy manner to abide with Christ in the days of peace, in times of consolation. But when we are under afflictions, temptations, and troubles, then to abide and keep close to Christ, this is the proof of love and friendship. And as Christ makes an honorable mention of their constancy towards him, so he presently assures them of an honorable reward. I appoint unto you a kingdom. Learn thence that such as are sharers with Christ in his suffering shall certainly communicate with him in his glory. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. And whereas our Savior promises his apostles to sit upon thrones with him, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, we may gather that such ministers as do most service for Christ and forsake most to follow him and continue in temptation and tribulations with him, shall in his kingdom partake of most honor and dignity with him and from him. You shall eat and drink in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Possibly the apostles and all the zealous, faithful, and laborious ministers of Jesus Christ shall be nearer his throne in heaven than either saints or angels, nearer than the angels, because by Christ's assuming the human nature, they are more nearly allied to him. He is their friend, but our brother, and nearer to other saints as having done more eminent service for Christ and brought more honor and glory to him by a laborious diligence in their place and station. Daniel twelve thirteen. They that turn many to righteousness shall shine. Verses thirty one and thirty two. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Burkett notes, Here I shall give, one, the general sense of the words, two, the particular matters contained in them, three, the special observations from them. The sense of the words is this, As for you, my disciples in general, and for thee, Peter in particular, I must tell thee that Satan has accused you all before God and desires that he may have the sifting of you all by his winnowing winds of temptation and persecution, that he may shake your faith and weaken your confidence. But I have prayed for you all, and particularly for thyself, who art in greatest danger of falling, because so confident of thine own strength and standing, that thy faith, though severely shaken, may not utterly fail, and when by repentance thou art recovered from thy fall, be careful to confirm and strengthen others, that they fall not in like manner. The particular matters contained in these words are these, a Christian's danger, a Christian's safety, and a Christian's duty. 1. A Christian's danger. Satan hath desired to sift you. Where observe 1. The person particularly warned of the danger, Simon, Simon the doubling of the word, doubtless, carries special intimations with it. It denotes the greatness and nearness of Peter's danger, his own security and insensibleness of that danger, and the great affection of Christ, his monitor, to give him warning of his danger. Observe three, the warning itself, and that is a devilish conspiracy against himself and all the apostles. Satan had desired to have you, to have you for his own, if it might be, to have you as believers rather than other men, to have you as eminent believers rather than other Christians, and to have you as apostles and ministers rather than other eminent believers. And as Satan is desired to have you, so to sift you too to winnowing you as wheat, not to fetch out the chaff, but to make the chaff. Here note that Satan has his winnowing winds of temptation and his tempestuous winds of persecution for the sifting of God's children. Note farther that it is the wheat, the good corn that Satan winnows, not chaff or dross. Sinners that are all chaff are nothing but dross. Satan will not be at the pains to sift and winnow them. But what is the sifting? Answer. In sifting two things are performed one, the agitation, shaking and tossing of the corn from side to side, the separation of the corn from the shaft and the dust. Satan intends the former. God effects the latter the corn is improved, not impaired by winnowing. The saints of God shall be no losers in the end by Satan's temptations, how many and stronger soever they may be in the way. Observe, too, the Christian safety. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. Where note one, the care that Christ had of Peter, and in him of all believers. I have prayed for thee, for thee is a believing Christian, and for thee is a tempted Christian." and tis not said, I will pray for thee, but I have prayed for thee. Christ prayed for Peter before Peter understood that he had need of Christ's prayer. Christ prayed for Peter as soon as ever Satan desired to sift Peter. Our intercessor is full as nimble and speedy in his suit for us as Satan is in his accusations against us. He has desired, but I have prayed. He is a potent assailant, but thou hast a powerful assistant. Observe, too, the subject matter prayed for, that thy faith fail not, not that thy faith be not assaulted, not that thy faith be not shaken, but that thy faith may not fail by an absolute and total deficiency. The third particular is the Christian's duty. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. When converted, that is, when converted from thy fall, when restored upon thy repentance to the divine favor, This conversion is not from a state of sin Peter was so converted before, but it was from an act of sin into which he should lapse and relapse. Strengthen thy brethren, that is, establish others in the faith from which thou art shamefully fallen thyself. Now the lesson of instruction from the whole are these. 1. That temptations are like shiftings. God shifts to purge away our dust and dross. Satan shifts not to get out the shaft. But to bolt out the flour. His temptations are leveled against our faith. 2. That Satan has a continual desire to be sifting and winnowing God's flour. Satan's own children are all bran, all chaff. This he sifts not. God's children have flour mixed with bran, good wheat mixed with chaff. There he desires to sift, winnow, and fan. Not to separate the bran and the dross, but to destroy the flour. Learn, 3, that the intercession of Christ gives security, satisfaction, and encouragement to all believers, that though their faith may, by temptations, be shaken and assaulted, yet that it shall never be finally vanquished and overcome. I have prayed that thy faith fail not. 4, that lapsed Christians, when recovered and restored, ought to endeavor to restore and to recover, to strengthen and establish others when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Verses 33 and 34. And he said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day, before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Marquette notes. St. Peter's resolution to accompany Christ both to prison and to death was holy and good but his too confident opinion of his own strength and ability, so to do, without a divine aid and assistance, was his failing in infirmity. Self-confidence is a sin too incident to the holiest and best of men. Little did St. Peter think what a feather he should be in the wind of temptation if once God left him to himself and to Satan's assaults. Learn farther how hard a matter it is for a Christian to excel in gifts and not to be overconfident and conceited. To see a man eminent in gifts, and yet exemplary in humility, is a rare sight. If we stand in the evil day, tis a humble fear of falling that must enable us to stand. Verses 35-38 And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, Nothing. Then he said unto them, But now, he that hath a purse, let him take it and likewise his script, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. Burkett notes, As if our Lord had said, Hitherto I have been with you and you've had my special protection and careful provision though you went without purse script or sword but the time is now at hand when I must leave you when your friends will be few and your enemies many therefore make such provisions for yourself as prudence shall direct indeed my sufferings will be first i must be numbered with the transgressors and all things that are written of me must be accomplished and will suddenly be fulfilled and after me you will next come upon the stage. Therefore, prepare and provide for it. Learn that Christ, having forewarned his members, but especially his ministers, of the dangers, distresses, and difficulties that they are to conflict and encounter with, it is their duty, by faith and patience, with courage and Christian resolution, to be well-armed and prepared against them.